you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. Causal representation learning is the future of medical imaging and AI combination. That's what Professor Sotirio Sapstaris believes and his research shows wonderful insights into this nascent field of causality and representation learning, counterfactuals and what it really means in the context of medical imaging. Listen to this episode where I had a conversation with Professor Saftaris about his current research and where this entire direction is heading. All right, so welcome to the seventh season of AR Ready Healthcare. It's a rather cloudy day here in Darmstadt. I'm your host, Anirban. It is a pleasure here today to welcome Professor Sotirio Saftaris, or Soto in short. Soto is currently the chair in machine learning and computer vision at the University of Edinburgh, UK. He also holds the Canon Medical Royal Academy of Engineering Research Chair in Healthcare AI. As if that's not enough, he also has a Turing Fellowship with the Alan Turing Institute and an Ellis Fellowship. Personally, I know Soto for a long, long time. He was my postdoc advisor in Italy almost a decade ago. <laughs> so we are getting older or rather wiser together. <laughs> but on that note, uh, welcome to the podcast, Soto. Yeah, thanks for having me, Anirban. We're definitely, both of us are getting older. That's definitely for sure. And I must say that it's surprisingly, it's a sunny day here with spots of cloud. Very cold, but very nice and sunny. So it's a pleasure to be here and uh, talk to yourself, uh, to you and your audience. Wonderful. So I guess it's always the, the typical question. In this case, I know a lot, but to our audience, how was your journey to this multifaceted uh, researcher slash professor that you currently are? Yeah, and I think I should uh, be a bit controversial and perhaps start a little bit further in the past. So. My father is an academic and he was doing his PhD when I was born. And, and, and I grew up in, uh, in the U.S., in North Carolina for several years. And somehow I grew up as a kid and as a, as a teenager thinking I'm an American trapped in a Greek body. So my dream was always to at some point live in America and work in America and study in America. So, and for me, the goal was always uh, at some point going to America, right? So I don't think I had an easy life uh, as a high school student or as a teenager. And at some point, and I, neither I was actually a very good student. 
But I found the love in computers and I found love in math. And somehow I realized that if I focus on a few things and the Greek system of education allowed you to do that, it wasn't depending on your grades to actually go and study very well something and do one exam very well. And then I got into electrical engineering, which was very a good school. So then I didn't know what I wanted to do. I actually was wanted to be a consultant. I wanted to work in finance. Long story short, I started working with images and signal processing and pattern recognition. And then I got a job uh, as an undergraduate researcher into these areas. I started working in watermarking, which at that point was hot of how to protect media from the digital revolution and the internet and so on, right? And then I started thinking about uh, doing a PhD. And then I met uh, my supervisor, my advisor, Kagilos Katsagilos, who happened to be visiting Greece. We were from the same town. We had a chat. And he said, ah, you could do a PhD, you know, think about it and so on. I went to do a PhD in the U.S. And I knew that I was going to do a PhD in the U.S. But I knew that I didn't want to do it in watermarking. And I didn't want to necessarily do it in signal processing. So I started working on a very crazy topic of using molecules and DNA molecules to store data. That uh, cruised me through the PhD, and I had a very good time learning a lot about things about, you know, biochemistry and combinatorial optimization, nothing to do with AI, nothing to do with signal processing. And then, you know, the reality hits that, you know, you got to find a job after your PhD. And I started having, spending some time in the Department of Radiology, talking to people and talking to some problems. And then somehow I got some funding to develop a, a startup out of my PhD that it was basically incubated within the university. And that led to the easiest way to do it, to have a position in the, in the US uh, as a research professor. And that was split between the departments of electrical engineering and radiology. And then I started getting more, a little bit more in love with medical image analysis. And I don't know if Christos Davadzikos will hear this, but he will definitely remember questions of my saying like, Christos, should I do this? I'm changing field. What should I do? Should I not do this? I'm worried. I don't understand all of this registration stuff and this math that you guys do. What should I do? And then, you know, things went a little bit different in my life. Uh, I wanted to move back to Greece. We had decided to move back to Greece. Then Greek crisis came. We moved back to the U.S. And then, uh, you know, my partner, we couldn't find jobs at the same place in the U.S. And we ended up in Italy. And I went up in Italy, not because I was doing very good medical image analysis only, but because I was also working with uh, uh, using image processing for restoring paintings. And it was a topic that we're also interested in that university. So something obscure that I did on the side actually helped me land the job. So, and then I went to Italy and I started a new lab and, you know, I hired postdocs, including yourself. And then I slowly became in love with the, the, this idea of, AI and machine learning and reading more. And then, you know, I followed the AI basically explosion. For family reasons, we moved out of Italy and I came to Edinburgh. And I just came to the right time at the right moment where AI was exploding. And it was not exploding as quickly in medical image analysis. And we were one of the first to start doing certain things in medical image analysis with AI in, in synthetic data. Also, thanks to Alex Franke, we were doing some initial workshops together and, and all of that. So my path basically has been a path of random Brownian motion, I will call it like that, with lots of challenges and lots of luck, I would say, but lots of challenges. So I've not a well, 
you know, not an easy path. I'll definitely say that. Yeah, but that's also quite fascinating that it's not like you were decided up front that you will do medical imaging for the rest of your life. There are lots of No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and I and I should say that even to this day, I don't even do only medical image analysis. I I I love new problems. And I think I, I remember in, I was in a Mikai conference and some of our colleagues came here. I'm not gonna name drop them now because they're friends. But they say, ah, I saw that you published this thing in plants. And I didn't know you do plants. I said, yeah, I do lots of other things just because I find things fascinating. And it allows you to kind of like be exposed on a lot of different problems. And, and I think this also has shaped a little bit our group. So we call it, we do interdisciplinary AI rather than AI or rather than medical imaging. Or, so we call it interdisciplinary AI. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So I guess by from the introduction of mine, it's already clear that you have multiple, how to say, hats that you have to wear. And you have also a pretty big group uh, plus collaboration. So you are fairly busy, probably busier than a typical professor. So how do you manage such a busy schedule? What are the really important things in your daily routine that you currently do, but you wish you started sooner? Yeah. So that's a very good point. So I I need to take a step back and, and think of how my life was as a young assistant professor versus how my life is now. So I think as a young assistant professor, I thought time is infinite, right? So I could work 18 hours a day or 19 hours a day or 12 hours a day and fit as many things as I can and, and try to make everything work. I think having kids made me realize that the day is finite and you need to focus on the important things of that you can accomplish within a week and within a day. So I, I think what I've learned now is that I've learned to say no. I don't say it well, and I think I probably annoy a lot of people, or I, I, I appear busy in an annoying way because I just don't know how to do it well. So, but I think if I wanted to learn, if I wanted to start something sooner was how can I have a more rigid schedule sooner and learn how to say no in the appropriate way. And I think it's important even for people later in the career stage, I mean, in any career stage, to be honest, to find time to think and reflect. So kind of how do you block time for yourself, whether you want to just play golf or you want to go out or just to have some time to think and reflect. You cannot imagine, because I know you're in a different institution in Germany and I'm in the UK. Every, Every country has a little bit different styles of how academia is, but it's incredibly easy to fill your day here with meetings and stuff. So you gotta be able to 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 protect yourself and protect uh, your uh, your way of thinking because at the end our job is to think now if you ask my students they say your job is to answer emails but or you know but uh, I, I still think that my job is to think yeah that's that's really a good point that uh, saying no to quite important opportunities is probably also part of growing up right it's like understanding to to make sure what is your top priority and for that you have to say no to many other still important things but not really top priority yeah and 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 to be honest you know thinking about i personally feel very bad when i say no like it's very hard for me to say no to somebody as a, as a personality and not being able to help or meet somebody or 
you know, a new collaboration, you always, I always feel hard to say no to a new problem that comes in my desk or somebody wants to meet me and say, but, and it's very hard to know which no you will say you will not regret after and which yes, you will say that it won't pan out something, right? So I think for younger researchers, they always want to say yes because they don't know that their estimator, right? Their estimator agent, if you want to think of like in a reinforcement learning way, your estimator agent is very bad and you just do full exploration and you just don't know where things will land. But I, I think what the system is not teaching us well is how to have the right way to be, to say the no in a polite manner. Uh, my way of doing it is basically ignoring the reply to an email for like two or three days and then uh, find that, say, I'm very busy, sorry, uh, can we do it in a month or, or something like that? And I think it's horrible. Uh, but, you know, my apologies to everybody who hears that. Of, but that's my way of trying to find no safe Nepal life, but it's probably terrible. Yeah, I guess what you are saying is right. There are many real world skills that academia do not teach us. And one of these is basically to have an interpersonal relationship that is productive for both parties, right? And saying no is in a way also very productive because that person is also not wasting a lot yeah. of time, uh, but it's it's difficult. And, and I think, you know, thinking back, I've learned how to make, if I want to ask somebody a favor, right? Or I want to work collaborate with somebody, I've learned at least how to write my email or how to approach them such that at least I can make them say easily yes or no, right? So at least I know how, when I communicate to somebody and I want something from them, how to have the right information in the, in the first contact, the first requirement, the need, and, and they have a good expectations of what I want so that they can say yes or no. And I think I wish everybody would do the same. Maybe ChatGPT will help us, right? We will have an agent to say, you know, before you email Sotos, you know, chat with GPT, and then, you know, it will write you the right email to help you how to get an answer from Sotos in a quick yes or no manner in a polite way. I don't know, uh, but I'm just, uh, you know, ChatGPT is in everything these days. <laughs> of course. No, that makes total sense. But uh, what you are also saying is, is something that resonates with the things that you said before, your general interest in interdisciplinary things. So probably general interest in people. And that also means that even though you are primarily an academic, you are successful in collaborating with industrial research. Canon Medical is probably one of the biggest examples from your current collaborations, but there are probably some other examples as well. So how does it work in practice? What were the typical things that you have learned to do by now that reaches you to a certain like probability of being successful. So I think that's a good point. And I should say that the fact that I have been successful with Canon and we have a very good relationship is not at random. It has happened because I had experiences in the past with companies, some positive, some negative, from the early part of my PhD career, right? So I was always exposed to that. And I think this is something that we don't do well as engineers, as a scientist, is to think about who is our audience and what will interest them? And, and how should we say what is interesting us in a way that it's interesting them? Now, of course, you know, going back to the, the Canon medical story, I think what has been very successful for us is 
we are actually here in the same city. So the research, the, the kind of medical research Europe is actually in Edinburgh. Pre-pandemic, you know, we will spend lots of time together in their office. So we will spend two days a week there in their office. They will spend a day a week in our office. We will attend meetings. And, and I think the key element there is, is unbelievable how much what we call the, the, the water cooler kitchen kind of meet cute benefits to develop rapport and get learn about new problems and kind of like link things together. And it was also very helpful to think about going to Japan and and it was an illuminating experience going to Japan because, you know, I, I, I spent some time in Japan as a PhD student for a few months. And then uh, for some reason, because I used to have a biography of the Machusita, I think it was Machusita who did Panasonic and another biography by Son for the founder of Sony. I was always fascinated about Japan. It's important to think of like the cultural aspect of how as a scientist, how as an engineer from a completely different background, from a completely different culture, can talk about science and engineering to another culture and how you behave. So I remember I did like uh, cultural adaptation sessions from a coach online on how to be a, how to work in the Japanese culture. I think then post pandemic or within pandemic, things were a bit different and we had to really quickly adapt and you know, how do we maintain contact with the teams whilst everybody's firefighting one challenge after the other, right? So I I think our success with Canon is big, but I can only imagine how it would have been if we didn't have the pandemic in terms of meeting collaborators, meeting clinicians, really have different types of problems. And we do a lot of the things that are not public domain as well. So they're not visible. If I were to give a piece of advice for people that want to work close to industry, and I love working close to industry, I, I love having the idea of the problem and the application embedded into the solutions and co-created and co-designed and so on. I, I really like this. Actually, it's easier to do the life of a, a you know, having an academic lab, a group where you, you solve this like theoretical problems, right? Or it just, it's much easier that life. Uh, a meeting is between you and your student and you and your postdoc. Now a meeting is basically a coordination effect uh, a lot and make sure that everybody's on board and, and there's good communication. So it's harder. But at the end of the day, I think you're closer to reality. And to me, as a scientist, being closer to reality is important. So basically, my advice is if you want to work to being close to reality, find a way of how you can communicate your interests in a way that align with the interests of others. Yeah, that's really a nice piece of advice. So focusing a lot about the communication, understanding the audience, what is interesting to them, and also communicating what interests you and how they might also feel interested about it. Being together in the physical space, co-creating, these are all the things that typical engineering computer science education do not teach, but really something from like summary of what you are suggesting would be really relevant. So I guess moving on to the uh, second part of the podcast, we should talk a little bit more about your core technical research areas. And we will talk today about two different things, representation learning and then causality. But let's start with 
representation learning. Now that's what uh, I guess the medical imaging community, you are an expert on this topic. So can you give us maybe three takeaways of why should we care about representation learning in medical imaging? Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And so representation learning actually has been part of machine learning for many years, right? So we used to call it feature engineering in the past, and we used to learn things with PCA, ICA, and we project a new space, and then we learn and solve the problem. So then I think it became somewhat, we became somewhat agnostic when we start having like this end-to-end learning pipelines and different models like UNET and resonance with all the skip connections that didn't properly define spaces. So I think one key takeaway is, you know, I do believe that we need to have representation spaces. So I think that's one key takeaway. I don't like this idea of a model that is a little bit too abstract, okay, into what it does. And the representations can help you probe what the model learns and you probe the space. You can do lots of interesting things. You can even look about how can we expand the latent space? Like, can you can you deal with the latent space in the context of domain generalization or invariances? You can check for robustness, actually. It's another key takeaway in invariances. Now, of course, if you think about performance, right, a model that is not constrained to learn a representation space is going to always do better in terms of performance, right? I mean, having to learn a representation space and having to be that representation space, having certain characteristics, you're actually regularizing, right? So performance will maybe drop. And I think the other key takeaway is related to the performance concept and issue is that most of the representation models today are simplistic in their assumptions that they make about the latent variables, like the assume IID. Yet, the way in order even to just do that, they're very complex to train, and they usually have many moving components to implement, right? You have like multiple encoders, decoders, lots of losses, and so on. So, so I think the main takeaway there is that I don't think representation learning is solved yet. There is, I mean, the assumptions are still very simple of, you know, independent generating factors. They're not independent. The world is not independent. The world is definitely correlated and causal. So, and, but at the same time, how do we find simpler models to do that? And I've been working on representational learning for a while, but what became very illuminating was actually having to do one of the first Nikai tutorials on disentangled representations. And where I sat down and I think I read like maybe 250 papers in about the span of like a month, and came up with the slides, and then we refined the slides in its version, and then we published a paper summarizing everything. And I, I found it to be very, very rewarding exercise. And the final takeaway, I know you said three, but I probably said like 11 by now. But the, the final takeaway is that I, I am a bit worried about how we are being swayed by trends, right? So I, I had one of the students come to me recently and say, should I be working on this entanglement? Isn't that dead? And I said, by what definition is that? You know, oh, because I see other new things, you know, ChatGPT and uh, diffusion models and, and other problems are there. And I said, yeah, but I mean, we probably have not found good ways to learn representations yet. And our brain definitely learns some form of representation, just don't know them yet. So my takeaway is that don't be swayed by trends. 
if you like something, just stick with it. Yeah, so that, that you, you said many things, but let me try to summarize the positives that you said. The, the first thing would be, it's really when you have such a representation learning, you, you get an understanding of what the model learned, you get more robustness, and also the possibility of extending the latent space. In terms of the problems that are currently open, you talked about the simplistic assumptions that current representation learning make, as well as the performance drop that is effectively coming from representation is being a regularization function. And it probably also somewhat connects to the fact of how we are currently designing our experiments to measure the performance. And it's probably not uh, how to say, have an open world assumption. And if we really have that probably representation of like of a certain complexity would shine there, but yeah. we have to really see it. But also something that another word that you said is disentanglement. Now to our listeners, disentangled representation is something new. Can you give us a little bit of insight what you meant uh, by yeah, disentanglement? Yeah. So I think... Uh... Let me unpack this, right? So representation learning is basically the idea of how can I represent the input in a new space upon which I make decisions, right? So can I learn some variables that basically describe the input in a manner that it's easier to make the decisions? Now, if you if you don't put any constraints, any things on the variables that you learn to make decisions, there can be anything, right? And actually, more or less. I would say even the, the most complex models have the type of idea of some variables that they make decisions on. So disentangled representations rely on the idea that these variables have to be independent from each other. So it becomes basically a regularizer in a bottleneck. And they assume that you know, the world is governed by God-giving factors that we call generating factors, that we assume they're independent. So I draw a, a random factor, I draw another random factor, I draw, you know, a series of them of the, the describe the different variables, and I create an image, right? I, I create something, right? We believe that the world is independent. And I think the performance drop actually comes from the fact that we believe that they're independent and disentanglement pushes for independence. But probably in the real setting, the world is not independent. And I think that's where the performance drop comes. So to, to your listeners, disentanglement is basically a, a way to say that the variables that we learn to make decisions on, we assume that they're independent from each other. I see. So basically, in a way, what we are trying to do is that we have, let's say, the input like an image, pixel yes. space, which can be an equivalent to the sensory input. And from there, we are going into this representation space which yeah. would be an equivalent to the mental model that we have about the world and its generating factors. And you are trying to learn the parameters of these generating factors so that you can map those to the decision that you are making. Right, so I think you're absolutely correct. So basically the whole goal of representation learning is to basically be able to estimate in a data-driven way these ideal God-given generating factors, right? I mean, that's the whole world. You can do this with supervision. 
you know, you can do it without supervision, you know, unsupervised, semi-supervised, whatever. But that's the fundamental goal. You're trying to find this ideal, ideal God-given generating factors, right? And this entanglement assumes these are that these God-given generating factors are independent from each other. That's it. How to find those generating factors, how to find the disentangled variables, it's a completely different ballgame, right? And the complexities of doing that with, you know, old methods, new methods, and, and so on. And in fact, a lot of papers have shown that even if you find all of these good disentangled variables, maybe they're not very useful for your task because probably by forcing them to be disentangled, you actually broke something. You actually broke a real correlation or a, or a real causal relationship. And that's where I think some, some of the results in disentangled representation learning and in theory show that you, know, you don't actually have good robustness. You don't have good task performance. You don't have good uh, you know, task transfer performance and, and, and so on. It, it's a fascinating problem, I think. But imagine how easier the world will be if we are able to have, let's say, different sensory inputs. Like humans, we have different sensory inputs that we, we speak, we touch, we hear, we, we see, we smell. Do you really be, do we really believe that in our in our brain that is that all disconnected? I, I don't think so. They at some point they come together somehow and then we make joint decisions, right? Or joint actions. So I think um, this is why I'm fascinated by the representations and it's just how we can create, how can we create machines that can process sensory input simultaneously and solve for several tasks simultaneously? I think and this entanglement just helps you formalize this a little bit, but it doesn't give you a good solution yet. So I guess, isn't it also connected to this one idea of active perception where we basically say that it's one thing from sensor to come up with the representation, but it's probably also connected the other way, as in the representations that you have are basically telling you what are the things that you need to sense. And not like you can't sense everything, right? That that's way too much information. But is it probably something that is missing in the current representation learning that we are only going in one way? Yeah, actually, that's a good point. I never thought about that way, and uh, and I know in, in in computer vision and I think in the robotics community, the thinking of this idea of can I intervene? You know, I mean, if you think about active perception, basically you are intervening on what you're perceiving, on your intervening, on what you're sensing, and what that uh, means for the representations. And I think that's an interesting direction. I, I must admit, we haven't explored it yet, but it, it's unbelievable like what our, what is the human brain, even of a child, can achieve in terms of perception and in terms of reasoning and in terms of a representation of the world. You know, I think when you were in Italy, I just had my first uh, daughter, right? And I will come and say, you know, I'm fascinated by how greedy their learning algorithm is, right? So if if I cry and mom comes, then I keep crying. <laughs> I mean, then mom, it's unbelievable. And, and the unlearning of that behavior is much harder, right? So it's fascinating. Yeah. But anyway, not, not, not let me ramble about active perception. No, but that's really an interesting discussion that we started around the representation and probably there you already hinted the fact that what sort of representation is meaningful it's probably 
just a data driven is probably not enough. We have to think something more, something different. And there comes probably also the idea of this causal representation coming up with certain biases in what type of model, the internal model that you want to learn. But you are definitely much more well-suited than I to introduce uh, causal inference, causal learning. So can you bring to our listeners a little bit of insights of what this direction is and why it is interesting for medical imaging? Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's an interesting take. So I'll, I'll tell you my journey of how I thought about causality and then simultaneously how other colleagues of ours thought about it. So um, so I I started with that thing that I realized very quickly that this independence assumption of the latent factors is probably unrealistic for the real world, right? It's too simplistic. And we, I did a, I'm terrible at programming, terrible. I don't know how to program anymore. But I found this very quick tutorial that was graphical uh, on a, running on a web browser on training a VAE. And I started playing with certain things and I gave it a very easy data set. And I realized that in order to fit that data set, which I think it had like three, three real independent factors within it, like three real factors within it. And they were independent, these factors, right? They were conditionally independent with them. But in order to fit the model and to be able to train the VAE, I had to tell the VAE that the internal representation should be 50. So I was overfitting the number of independent factors in order for the VAE to... And I said, well, something is going on there. Then, then I created another example of the input data where I created a relationship, like a correlation between the data that I gave it. And then I saw that it even failed even worse. I needed, to, I needed to give it 150, completely overfit. So then I started looking into this problem, and it, it was also a discussion at some point with about some of their interests in the future. And we started reading about these things about causality. And, and, and causality, in my mind, is two different things, two different and related things, and they can be useful for different ways. Okay, So one is the classical, what we call causal AI. Right, and which in there you have problems like can identify given some known variables that causal relationships. This is causal. It's called causal discovery, and, and we just had a paper accepted by ICLR on how to do causal discovery with diffusion models uh, in very large dimensions. Then there is the other classical problem of doing causal inference. Right? Can you create counterfactual questions? Like the data will give you the facts. Can you ask a counterfactual question, like how would my face look if I put sunglasses on? Or how what will happen to me if I start uh, eating less sugar? You know, probably I lose weight. And then think about treatments, right? So you can you can think of, you know, if I were to give Sotos this drug, how the future would look like. This is a couple of classical cause of AI. And then there is uh, and and if you're interested in your readers are interested in that for the context of healthcare. We have a, a very easy to read article in the Royal Society open for kind of like an easy introduction, right? Then there is an, another, and, and within that, there is also the new kid on the block where it's called causal representation learning, which is the extension of how can I learn variables from data whilst doing causal discovery simultaneously, right? So how can I have data, project them into a latent space, and do causal discovery uh, on them and kind of like learn them simultaneously. And, and it's a very new problem 
causal representation learning. Then there is the other dimension, which I find also equally fascinating, which is called causality for ML. And there it basically, it tells you how to use causal principles to understand your model, to guide your data collection, to think about fairness, to think about what makes sense. And I think the work of Ben uh, Glocker there uh, that had a, a, a paper a few years ago is very illuminating, but also Ben Hashlokov's Causality for ML review and opinion article, I think it was about a year or so ago, is also very illuminating. I, and I think that's actually equally useful for a lot of people to say, wait a minute, have I collected the, the right data for that problem? Have I accounted for the invariances that I want, like the sensitivities that I want? Maybe my data are not well balanced. So, and well balanced is easy for us to think in terms of disease, right? Oh, you know, 100 normals, 100 disease. But have we thought about, is it well balanced, for example, with respect to, let's say, gender or with respect to race or with respect to this? These questions of balance are easier to answer if you think about causal principles. And I think Ben's paper is, is very interesting in some of the, the examples that he puts on that. I don't think causality is an easy problem to solve. And a lot of the, a lot of the causal problems are ill-defined. Like the way these entangled representations are actually ill-defined. There are infinite independent spaces that can describe a data set, right? And that's why you said before, you need restrictions. You need extra knowledge. And this is what I think is the marriage of, let's say, causality with representation learning, because it helps you encode even some restrictions in the problem, some priors. So coming from the technical world of machine learning, medical imaging, to the fact of how the technical world, the peer review process, how it works. So you often criticize in public forums such as Twitter about the review quality and the citation culture of our community. Will you sort of summarize the three main points where you are the least satisfied and probably some fixes that you already have in mind? Yeah, yeah, thanks. So, you know, I, I try to keep a positive note as much as the discussion that we had before, right? So I think that's kind of a little bit more practical, somber thing to discuss. Because at the end of the day, science goes through scientific venues and journals and conferences and and I've been, you know, involved in the process of reviewing for many years, either as associate editor or area chair for many conferences and doing reviews on my own as well. So I think the explosion of our field, and when I say the field, I'm not talking about only Mikai, but in general, computer vision and so on, has put a huge pressure on who can we tap into a review to review. So this meant that we probably are overworked. So this means that we're paying less attention to the to the work that we do, the reviewing work, and or we are tapping into reviewers that have less experience in reviewing. So the variation of review quality, I think it's an issue for all conferences and all journals uh, as well. Uh, I think the fix there would be to kind of have a, a training culture and a reward mechanism for people willing and happy to be a reviewer and a good one, right? Whether it's monetary reward or recognition or, you know, get a discount or something, I don't know. But we need something to change. And proper training, 
but also a reward mechanism. I think training is required in a reward mechanism. And I'll get back to the training aspect a bit later, but um, I'll be about the quality. The the things about the, the citation. So I've been, I think we have a recent culture in becoming where we are happier to cite a previous NeurIPS or CDPR paper rather than making sure that we're citing previous Mikai or conf, main conference or journals of the Mikai society or workshops. So you cannot imagine how many times I get annoyed when I, I, I review a paper or I'm, in, you know, I'm being the chair of the, the area chair of that paper and I'm like, man, how did they miss that? Why they didn't remember this and why they're not doing that and why they're not citing this paper and why the reviewer does not bring this paper up, right? So, and I don't blame, you know, it's easy to blame the people in this context, right? But you have to think of the context of there is an information explosion. So we need tools that help us do that, right? And I think if we have tools as we write papers to tell us what is the right related work, uh, and help us, you know, pull the right references. Yeah. If we have tools, when I'm a reviewer, it helps me find the right references for that paper, you know, contrast it. As a reviewer, it helps me write a good review because it pulls in the right piece of pieces that I need to, to say in my review. I think that's very, very, it's going to be very, very fruitful. Like, so it can be shiny, like ChatGPT again coming into the discussion. But it can also be something simple. So I remember with Bernhard Kynes, when I was like, you know, moaning about this, he said, no, maybe we can come up with like a different forms. So think about it, right? So when you apply for, when you submit your paper and you become a reviewer, we have to upload our papers also to, to PMS, to the Toronto Paper Matching System, so they can find the right reviewers, right? Sometimes the review, the, the PMS will recommend the right papers to cite because they, you know, they are there from our Mikai community, because people uploaded them. And the papers are not cited in the paper that, you know, the original paper, you know, that we're trying to find reviewers for. So imagine if we had a review form where we are asking the author as they're submitting it to say, you know what, when you're doing the pre-registration, identify 10 papers related from Mikai that you think are related to your paper. Identify 10 other papers that are related to your paper, but not in your okay, and you do that during pre-registration phase, right? And then a reviewer will come there and say, you know, and then if you don't include the certain paper in your paper, you have to explain why. And I think that helps also ensure that we have a continuity and cap we capture well the field, and we don't assume in a, of a sloppy quote-unquote reviewer that doesn't know very well the history of the field to let a, a, a missing review a missing citation pass by. So, you know, I think that would be fantastic. I don't think it would be really hard to implement that, but somehow we need to get down and say, you know, this is not good enough. We need to do better and we need the right tools for it. So I think the problems are we need better training. And I think imagine if we had a, a, a way as a reviewer types, you know, a review that, an automated system flags certain things as they use a positive tone, don't be like this, don't be like that. Like these exist. I mean, companies exist that build that, right? Bots. Grammarly has a new bot now doing AI assisted editing. Uh, so, you know, they can help. 
right? They can really help being positive and, and being uh, and using the right facts in this. And then, you know, the tools that can help us do the citation, you know, matching, do the, the make sure that the, the papers capture the field. Yeah, that's really an important thing, right? So that you have to consider a multi-layer approach that starts with the responsibility to the to the submitter that they find most common papers from within the community and also outside and that then sort of in an automatic fashion tpms style uh, try to find the best sort of reviewers idea chairs etc of course the training the reviewers is really relevant i guess it's also comes to some of the how to say things that are not even explainable anymore but the restrictions are still there and one of the things like for example i i noticed in mikai we still have like two pages of references only like what does it even mean because nobody prints papers and paper-based books anymore right it's uh, so yeah in a way that also restricts, right? You can argue that you will, like you will try to find uh, how to say citations that are not really for four line long. So if there are multiple authors with last name of yours or mine, they will automatically not be picked up because they, they are taking a lot of line space. <laughs> so, and also a lot of multidisciplinary papers, right? If you are talking about a typical Mikai paper, we hope that they had like a lot of authors from both clinical and yeah. technical. Yeah. Whereas if you are talking about a purely computer science venue, machine yeah. learning venue, two, two authors. So yeah. there is a lot. Yeah. But- you also brought an interesting point, Anirban, and that, you know, the two pages limitation, right, in the Mikai conference. And I think it's a battle that with some point we have to decide what is a conference paper for and what is a journal paper for. And I'm not in the Mikai society's editorial board or that, that talk about publications, but I think if I was thinking with my, you know, editorial hat on, I would say, you know, the conference started as a way to quickly disseminate knowledge that is then extended to a journal, right? Now, if you suddenly make the conference paper bigger and bigger and bigger, like CVPR style, and there's like 12 pages now, and then the supplemental of another 50, the same thing happens for NeurIPS, ICLR, then, I mean, what's the point of a journal, right? But then you're creating this huge bottleneck of everybody has to submit by that date. You put a huge strain on the system to basically review everything at the same time. And, you know, who knows what's get thrown out, how many bad decisions are made and, and so on. So, you know, I, I don't know what is the right answer, but I think either we decide that conferences are an easy way to disseminate and they have to be shorter and quicker. Or, and then we still have journals, or they still have to be equalized. And then there is really doesn't matter when you submit. You know, you just go, you can submit at any time. You just go to the conference to just talk to people and, and hang out. And that's it. I mean, I, I, I don't know the right answer, but I, I see lots of fatigue with this, uh, this you know, conference stress deadlines and, and so on. And, uh, and you have the different pressures also from the other communities. Like, you know, they don't really see Mikai conference papers as an important 
if you're coming from the clinicians, right? So they say, well, it should be in a journal and you know, all of these cultural shift, shifts that exist. So I, I don't know, I think we need a, we need everything. Hopefully it will come soon. There are good opportunities. There are good, uh, there are good things happening. No, but that's really a great point that we are coming towards the end of our chat. I wish we could have talked a lot more about the diffusion models and the causality and the interplay between them. We really don't have much time for that. But towards the end, we have this again traditional question. So imagine you have unlimited resources for the next five years and you can focus on just one problem. No worries about the university, about the meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So what would that problem be? Yeah. So I I don't know how many of your listeners are, are aware of what's happening with the these, com- these new startups that are developing imaging devices that are portable, more affordable, like, you know, butterfly, hyperfine, and so on. But I would really love to be able to work on the idea of a new type of imaging device that is affordable and portable, portable and can probe inside the body. I think for me, that's, that's very, very unique. And, and it will probably involve AI, it will probably involve physics, it will probably involve pathophysiology, electronics, anything you can imagine will have to come into play. So if I had unlimited funding, this is what I will focus on now. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing world, right? Where you can come up with such portable devices that are affordable, that can go to conflict zones that can go to the low and middle income countries and really bring value, bring healthcare to to the really deprived people who can actually benefit from it. Not only that, right? I think we are moving into a new type of healthcare where going to the hospital or, you know, is the, 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 the lux part, right? You need to have more distributed health, even within a setting like in the UK here in or even at home, right? I mean, think about it. I'm wearing now a very affordable smartwatch. What the smartwatch does, it will be unthinkable 20 years ago uh, as a device, right? You can look at my heart and my pressure and, and things like that. So, you know, imagine if we can think of a future where imaging is like that and we have it at home or we have it at, you know, at the local uh, doctor's office. I, I think that's going to change health to be able to probe inside the body. Yeah, on that note, I wish you all the success in achieving the thinkables and also the really, really ambitious projects. Thank you so much for your time, Sotos. It's been wonderful to talk to you again and learn a lot from you about how you are thinking of this intersection between AI and healthcare, medical imaging in particular. I wish you all the success and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for having me. And thank you to your listeners. Hope.